0: We're going to get a little out of order this evening. If that's all right with you, but we're going to pick up right at the beginning of Exodus chapter 18. You might say, well, that's not out of order. We just finished chapter 17, right? On Sunday. So chapter 18, verse one. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Remember Jethro? The other name he goes by is Ruel, and he's the the father of Zipporah, Moses' wife, and he was the family, basically, he's where Moses ended up when he fled from Pharaoh so long ago, ended up there in Midian, and Midian, which would be the Saudi, the Arabian Peninsula today, and so Moses was there, and that's where he met Zipporah and met Jethro, married Zipporah, had his sons, And now, now, Jethro has heard from Midian all that's taken place in the journey from Egypt to the Sinai. Check this out. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he had sent her away, verse two, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The other was named Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And then Jethro Moses' father-in-law came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Now, I think it'd be great if my father-in-law would give me a heads up before he was coming. <laughs> you know, So nice guy, this Jethro. And so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and they went into the tent. This is good Middle Eastern custom. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. God is I am. This is how he's revealed himself to the people. And we've been made aware of this now through, the, through the, the book of Exodus, Shemot. We've been learning that God reveals himself here as I am, ever present, always here and now. And it's the simplest and best explanation of the foreknowledge of God. The Bible talks about the foreknowledge of God he sees and he knows it all instantly because he is I am. And being I am, what is to us foreknowledge is just for God, knowledge It's just what he sees happening in the now because he's always in the now. What was past for us, well, he's I am. What's future for us, he's I am. And so the Bible says in Romans 8, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That is, he knew you were gonna believe in him he knew those who would trust him. Before we ever trusted, he knew we would. And so knowing that, seeing ahead, being I am, he predestined us once he foreknew us. He already knew. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, in fact, the intro to his letter, 1 Peter 1, verse 1, he wrote to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He chose those who choose him. We've talked about this before. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. And it explains what I want to, uh, I want to use a phrase with you tonight, and it's the title actually I've thrown into this teaching, non-linear grace. Non-linear grace. The foreknowledge of God explains non-linear grace. What is that? We live our lives on a timeline, from beginning to end, we're born, we count our birthdays, we count anniversaries, we count holidays, we even count time of death. It's all on a timeline from what we would call the beginning to the end of our lives, but for Yahweh, I am, it's all at once. He sees it all concurrently. It's all happening in the now. That is, and it's mind-blowing to even think about, but that is God sees 10-year-old Rick going into the waters of baptism, even as he sees 56-year-old Rick teaching tonight. For him, it's instant. I'm on this linear timeline. God is not. God is I am. And so he has foreknowledge because he sees it all at once. Remember the thief on the cross. Now consider this with me. Luke 23, 42, he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's timeline linear thinking. And Jesus said truly I say to you today you shall be with me in paradise. Now I don't know how the thief responded to that but it must have been shocking in the moment to realize that that very day he would be with the Lord and he would be in a place known as paradise and in the Hebrew mind that's that's amazing that's where you wanted to be. Today How could Jesus make him such a sure promise? And it's because, listen, after a lifetime of linear failure, culminating in what appears to be a justifiable crucifixion for this man, Jesus saved him. Jesus saved him. The story of the thief on the cross throughout Christian history has been one of the most compelling because we see a man whose life was tragic and a complete mess ending up being executed for crimes against the state, legitimate crimes, and in that last moment, he cries out in faith, Jesus, remember me, and Jesus says, gotcha, I've gotcha. Now, in my linear thinking, I would say, what about the load behind him of sin and and messiness and, and tragedy and bad choices? And Jesus would say, well, I always knew he was going to choose me. Jesus would have known by the foreknowledge of God, he knew this thief was going to come to faith. It matters not when. And do you understand that about faith? That it doesn't matter when. What matters is that we come to that point. Whether it's a child, a teenager, a young adult, an older person, the, the issue is, Faith and this for the thief, this is the apex of his life up on the cross next to Jesus. And listen, this final declaration of faith will now define this man's life for the rest of eternity. Not the timeline of his failure and sin up to that point, but the moment of faith from here on out, he will always be known as the one who believed in Jesus at the last minute. The man who gave his life to Jesus. On the cross, it, again, mattered not when it happened, but that it happened, that he came to the place of faith. That is what I call non-linear grace. It's not based on a timeline. In fact, if we're being honest, non-linear grace, which is a, sounds fancy, is just a way of saying grace. It's just what grace is. And I'm not telling you this to say, so you got time, put off Jesus to the last second. The truth is we think we have time, Time is irrelevant. Choice is the issue. Choosing Jesus now. Why would you put Jesus off? Why would you, in what we think of this linear thinking that we have, why would you say, you know, Jesus, I hear, he gives grace and love and forgiveness and compassion, and he'll be with you, and he brings wisdom and comfort in all your hard times, but I'm gonna wait on that. I, I think that's something I'd like to have maybe in my 80s. For now, I really don't need the love of my creator. It makes no sense to think that way, and I think most people who don't choose Jesus put off choosing Jesus because they get the wrong perspective that he's offering non-linear grace. People will think I've lived my life up to this point and it's been really a mess. I need to clean things up first. That's linear thinking. That's linear law. Non-linear grace says it doesn't matter what came before. What matters is that you choose him, period. That you come to faith, period. And the moment you, you turn to Jesus, he's with you. Why would you want to put that off? I mean, do you want to end up on your own cross like the thief? Do you think looking back, he's glad he spent a lifetime in complete wreckage ending up on a cross? No. Praise God, he came to faith and was saved. But I've talked to more people who come to faith later in life who say the same thing over and over. Oh, that I had believed in Jesus 30 years ago. Oh, that I had lived with Jesus my whole life. People who are so thankful that they've come to Jesus now, but when they look over the wreckage, they think how much could have been spared if I had walked with Jesus back then. We're so linear in our thinking. I'll make that decision someday. And Jesus says, how about now? Because I am and I am right here. What has that got to do with Exodus? I told you we're gonna get a little out of order. We are so linear in our thinking, even with the Bible, we go through it and we look at this historical account, and we wanna make sure it all lines up chapter by chapter by chapter. When we began our study in Shemot, I gave you a four-part outline. You recall this? I said four parts. Number one, part one is the deliverer. Chapters one through four. Then I said, we're gonna look at the deliverance, and that's chapters five, now through 17. I think when we first did this, I told you five through 18. It's really five through 17. Well, we've covered all that. The first two parts of this four-part outline, deliverer and deliverance. Well, tonight we come to the delivery. That is the delivery of Torah, and that's chapters 18 through 24. Then there's a part two to delivery, fourth part of our outline, which is the delivery of the tabernacle, which we'll see in chapters 25 through 40. And this delivery of Torah and tabernacle is going to take up the rest of Exodus along with Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But hear this. Chronologically, on this linear timeline as we think, the whole giving of the law, all of that takes place before chapter 18 of the book of Exodus. Chapter 18 is out of order. I shared this with our staff today and the the look on Jake's face was hysterical because as someone who likes history and likes the chronology of things, he just looked at me like, uh, in fact, he looked over to Ava kind of with this look of, I think we've just lost Rick. (laughs) (laughs) This is it. He's finally cracked. He's going off. Before Exodus 18 takes place, the law has been given. The entire law given at Mount Sinai has already happened prior to Exodus 18. The visit of Jethro takes place at the end of the Israelite experience at the Mount of God. What Jethro shares with Moses in chapter 18 is the last bit of organization before the cloud of God's glory lifts and the Lord leads forward from the mountain, from Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Note this, chapter 19. Skip ahead and look at 19, verse one, which says, in the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, They came into the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain, the Mount of God, what we call Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. So they're finally there, but Exodus 19 tells us it took exactly three months from their departure from the borders of Egypt, through their amazing journey, culminating in the Red Sea, and then the fight at Rephidim against the Amalekites, and now finally, they have arrived, three months, is how long it took to get from Egypt to the Mount of God. But when Jethro comes, Moses is already at the mountain. Chapter 19 begins saying they came to the mountain, but we're told that Jethro, chapter 18, verse five, came to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. So Jethro arrives in chapter 18, but chapter 19 begins with the people arriving. Something's out of order. Apparently, Moses and the people have been at the mount for quite some time at this point. Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, tells us, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai they will camp, now, coming to Mount Sinai, they will camp here 10 days shy of two years. 10 days short of two full years. And note this, more than a third of Torah, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, more than a third of this section, totaling more than 59 chapters, are devoted to what happened at Mount Sinai in these two years. So much takes place of the teaching of Torah that we will be getting into and seeking to understand. And it's, it's amazing, the teachings of God. But further, in, in chapter 18, note that Moses and Jethro have a discussion. If you look at verse, uh, verse chapter 18, verse 16, Moses mentions, when people have a dispute, it comes to me and I judge between man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses is now telling Jethro, when the people come to him with problems, he tells them what the law is. How does he know what the law is? Unless it had already been given. We see it repeated also in verse 20 when Jethro tells Moses, teach them the statutes and laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. How does he know the statutes and laws? They've already been given. That is, the people come to the mountain. The 10 commandments are given by God in the hearing of the people. People freak out, so then Moses is gonna go up the mountain and he's gonna get the rest of the law and bring it back. All kinds of things will happen. The golden calf is gonna be made. There's gonna be the law broken, both literally and figuratively, as Moses will break the tablets before them. As a graphic show, a depiction of what they did, and then Moses goes back up the mountain, gets the law again, fully unchanged, brings it right back down, begins to implement it. They build the tabernacle. They follow through on what he says, all right there, camped at Mount Horeb. And after all of that, Jethro shows up. Jethro arrives, bringing Zipporah and Moses' two sons. And if you want more proof of this, and it's inherent both in chapter 18 and 19, it's also inherent later on. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter one, immediately after recounting this exact story in chapter 18 of Jethro coming and giving counsel about how to judge the people of Israel, how to get help for Moses. Moses writes, Deuteronomy 119, then we set out from Horeb. So according to Deuteronomy, the last thing to happen is Jethro arrives and they organize judges for the people and then they leave. So it's not at the very beginning, but it's at the end of their two year stay at Mount Horeb. Exodus 18 probably fits best chronologically on that linear timeline between Numbers chapter nine and 10. If you wanna be chronological, you could take Exodus 18 out and just stick it in there. That's probably when it happened at the end of the two years at Mount Horeb. You might ask, well, if that's the case, why? Why does Moses confuse it and get it out of order? Why stick chapter 18 here before chapter 19? That's a great question thematically, thematically, chapter 18 fits as an epilogue to the journey from Egypt to Mount Horeb. Though it takes place at the end of their time at Mount Horeb, it's a great epilogue to the people coming out of Egypt and now being at Mount Horeb because Jethro and Moses are gonna talk about the Lord did what he said he'd do. The Lord followed through as they recount this history together and Jethro marvels that God did it all. And so Moses places chapter 18 here because thematically, it fits very well. And it's also a picture of non-linear grace. (laughs) Non-linear grace. God is not worried about timelines and chronology. We like it that way, but understand what I've told you before. The Bible, while absolutely, perfectly, historically accurate, is not a history book. There are many things in scripture that are chronologically out of order. Just go to the minor prophets. The last 12 books of the Hebrew scriptures are not in order. You gotta place them all throughout the kings. You know, Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings, that's where the the minor prophets so-called will fit into that. They're not in chronological order. The books are just so placed. God's not concerned with the linear. He's concerned with grace bringing his grace, and revealing his deliverance. And chapter 18 is a reminder of both the grace and the deliverance of God. We'll see the focal point of the first 12 verses of chapter 18 that we just read. It's all looking back. It's all referring to what the Lord has done leading up to Mount Sinai. So it's a good place to say that. The other thing is that in a literary sense, chapter 18 and chapter 17 parallel each other in some really cool ways. So this is rather than linear, it's literary. It's true, it's exactly what happened, but Moses places it here because think about these things. Both chapter 17, which we just studied, and chapter 18, which we're about to look at, both of them took place over two days. Chapter 17 was a two-day event. Water from the rock at Rephidim and the attack of the Amalekites at Rephidim. Chapter 18, though it happens much later, also takes place over two days, just two days. On the first day in chapter 17, God refreshes Israel with water from the rock. On the first day of chapter 18, God refreshes Jethro with faith. On the first day in chapter 17, we find or on sorry, on the second day of chapter 17, we find Moses weary. He can't keep his arms up. Guess what happens on the second day of chapter 18? Moses is weary with all the judgments and the constant work he's having to do to judge all the disputes of the people. And there are more parallels here. Chapter 17, the Amalekites represent the Gentile world in rebellion to God, combative, coming to fight, In chapter 18, we see another Gentile, Jethro the Midianite, who represents the Gentile world coming into community with God's people, as one day it will be. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. The whole Jew-Gentile thing disappears in Jesus Christ. So while the Amalekites are Gentiles who came to fight God, Jethro is a Gentile who came to to have faith in God, who came to see the light of God. There are more Hebrew phrases and parallels between chapter 17 and 18 that reveal to us that show very clearly that the placing of these two chapters is a literary placing, not a linear placing, nonlinear grace. Now we're gonna unpack chapter 18 in two sections The first section is verses one through 12, as we just read, and we'll call that salvation. The second section we'll pick up in verse 13 through the end of the chapter, and we'll call that adjudication. So first, salvation. I already read it to you, but note a couple of things that Jethro, the Midianite father-in-law of Moses, now comes to the Mount of God as the chapter opens up. He's heard all about the divine deliverance of Israel. So word has reached his ear. I told you before, word has gone out People are aware, as far north as Moab and Edom, people are aware of the Red Sea crossing. They are aware of what happened to the massive, threatening Egyptian army, which suddenly is no more. They're aware of this people of Israel on the march. So now Jethro has received word of this as word travels fast, even without Twitter, and he knows, and down he comes to meet with Moses, and he brings along Moses' wife, Zipporah, Her name means little bird. Remember we said she perhaps flew the coop earlier? He brings Zipporah and he brings Moses' two sons now back to Moses. Verse two, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away. So truly Zipporah didn't fly the coop. Moses sent her away. It's amazing how much time Bible scholars must have on their hands because this verse has been debated. Did they divorce? No, they didn't divorce because Jethro is bringing Moses' wife back to him. Did he kick her out, send her off? Did she leave anger? Was there a rift between Zipporah and Moses? And you know what? You can play the drama game from verse two, you can come up with all kinds of reasons for this separation. The most simple and the most likely is Moses knew the events of the Exodus could take time and could turn ugly. And he didn't want to risk his young sons. And he didn't want to risk his wife. Look at it this way, naval personnel. Moses goes on deployment and sends his wife and kids over to stay with mom and dad till he comes back. And that's what's taking place. There's no rift. There's no issue here. The plain sense of scripture just shows that they went to stay with Jethro and now he's bringing them down to Moses at Mount Sinai. Note the boys. Verse three says, she brought her two sons of whom one was named Gershom. And then verse four, the other was named Eliezer. Please jot this down. Gershom, we talked about before, means sojourner. Moses' firstborn son is named Sojourner, Gershom. That's us. That's us. We are sojourners. We are Gershom in this world here and now. Man, it's so easy to get hung up on the events of the day, whatever they be, whether it's this year, 2020, or 10 years ago or 30 years ago, it's so easy to get hung up on the issues of life here and now. We're sojourners. We are not settlers we are like Gershom and Peter says in 1 Peter 1:17 if you address the father as the father as if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay the word he uses there stay is paroikia which means sojourn in the time of your sojourn 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 he says beloved i urge you as aliens uh, which is sojourners. I urge you as sojourners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. We're in flesh, but we're temporary. We're sojourning here on this earth, so don't feed the flesh. Man, feed the spirit, which will protect the soul. Live for Jesus. So we're sojourners. That needs to be part of our mentality. Like Moses' firstborn, but like his secondborn, we're not alone. No, we have Eliezer, which means helper. We are sojourners with the helper. Man, that describes, that defines every follower of Jesus Christ today. I'm a sojourner with the helper. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, Jesus said, that he may be with you forever. But the Helper, John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. I'm going to send him. In John 16, he says, it's better for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, I can't send the Helper. I'm sending the Helper to be with you always. Whereas Jesus in his flesh could only be with any one of the disciples or any one of his followers at a given time. He says, man, isn't it better if I go, I'll send my spirit so that wherever you are, if you're Philip in Samaria and Peter in Jerusalem and Paul out on some crazy mission, my spirit's with you. I go with you wherever you are, you sojourners with Helper. That's who we are. Strangers in this world, but we are not helpless. The Spirit of God resides with us, journeys alongside us, cares for us. So Jethro brings Zipporah and the boys, but after this full recounting of the Exodus. Between him and Moses, he comes in and brings him into the tent. They talk about the whole thing. Jethro shares what he's heard and Moses clarifies, here's what really happened, the good times and the bad over the last three months. Jethro is blown away and check out down in verse nine of chapter 12. Jethro rejoiced over the goodness which Yahweh had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And then he says, watch this, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. That is when the Egyptians dealt with pride against the Israelites. It was proven true as Yahweh took down every single god of of Egypt, remember the stories, and through the the plagues. And Jethro states, now I know. Atayatati, in the Hebrew. Atayatati, now I know. It's an exclamation of something newly discovered. We would say, aha. (laughs) We would say, I get it. Uh, Now I understand. And that's Jethro, in this moment, it all comes home to his heart. Now I know. Atayadati, yadati, aha. You know what, listen, it's entirely bogus to say that Moses got the idea of a monotheistic God from Jethro. Actually, it's completely the other way around. Jethro, who was a priest of Midian, probably had some sense of the monotheistic God because Jethro comes from the line of Abraham and Keturah, the Midianites. Midian was a son of Abraham and Keturah. So the idea of monotheistic God was probably passed along. But now Jethro says, now I know. Now I understand. Mottier says Jethro came not out of the family duty, which he fulfilled, but as a serious inquirer after the Lord, a Gentile coming to the light. He says, to speak of Jethro's conversion to Yahweh is certainly not going too far. Simply put, Jethro got saved. It's not too much to say in this exclamation. Now I know that Jethro gets it. He realizes faith comes rushing in to this Gentile Midianite as he stands here recognizing Yahweh is the God. Yahweh is God above all gods. He is the only true God, and Jethro believes, and by the way, it's an early indication of a beautiful nonlinear promise. That is, Isaiah 60, verse one, arise, shine. Your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations, nations, Gentiles will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And that's why we're here tonight, because as Gentiles, we have come to his light. The light of Jesus Christ through Israel, the lineage of Israel, but the light has come to all of us. Jethro is one of the first, a Gentile coming to faith. Well, Rick, just because he says, now I know, no, because there's more. Look at verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. Why did Aaron come? Because by now he's high priest. That gets set up in Leviticus, the next book. But it's already happened. Aaron comes. Some people say, well, yeah, Jethro came and and offered up sacrifices. No, it says Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took, or literally he brought. He brought a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. Aaron's there, along with the elders of Israel, to receive that sacrifice and to actually offer it up. And this is interesting because this implies, and we should understand, that the altar is already established. The sacrificial system is now in play. Because somehow Jethro learns what it is that he is to bring, a burnt offering and then a peace offering. How do you know that? Because he eats it with Moses, Aaron, and the elders of Israel before God. That's the peace offering. These are things we won't even understand until Leviticus, and yet it's understood at this moment. Jethro finds out what to bring, the burnt offering, Leviticus chapter one, verse three. And then, by the way, that offering recognizes sin, and it accepts God's atonement. Why would Jethro, a Gentile, bring a burnt offering? He's doing so in recognition of his sin, in recognition that he needs the atoning of God. So he brings the burnt offering, as per Levitical law. And then he brings the peace offering along with it, which we read about in Leviticus chapter three, Because now Jethro is joining in fellowship around the divine presence with the elders of Israel and Aaron, the high priest. So the burnt offering for his sin and the peace offering, which is the fellowship offering, and Jethro connects himself to Israel. In fact, according to Numbers chapter 10, it looks like Jethro stays with them now the rest of the time until they're about to leave. He's there with them and perhaps even Travels with them quite a distance. In community with his distant brothers. Remember Jethro is from the line of Abraham too. But he's brought the burnt offering for sin and the peace offering for fellowship and connection. This Gentile with the Israelites. I love the peace offering. I can't wait to talk about that. We'll get there in Leviticus, Lord willing and the saints don't rise. But the peace offering is a remarkable offering in Israel, and it points to something more glorious. Let me read this to you, Ephesians chapter two, verse 11, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that You were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, that is between Jew and Gentile, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity, that is that mistrust because of the different Jewish and Gentile behaviors in the world, differences, breeding, mistrust. He says he's put that away. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Back in verse 14, Ephesians chapter 2, He Himself is our peace. Jesus. That is so significant in a nation that is so divided. Our nation. Our nation of perceived differences, racial differences, political differences, even differences on how people view the virus. And it's dividing, and it's it's stunning to me. And we're watching the riots take place in normally peaceful, if not nutty cities, We're seeing people who can't communicate. We're seeing people angry at one another for having different opinions and different views, and this division that's happening in our country. And I want to tell you something. I think there's only one way that's going to get solved, and it's not the presidential election. Paul is very clear that peace and unity will only and can only come one way. He is our peace. Through Jesus, we've talked about this off and on over the last few weeks, Jesus unites us. We will never be united on our positions or opinions. Jesus unites us. He himself is our peace. Man, if he can bring a Midianite Gentile into fellowship with the people of Israel, he can bring people with different views on coronavirus into the same unity because it's Jesus who unites us how does a priest of Midian come into this fellowship? Non-linear grace, non-linear grace. It doesn't depend on Jethro's lineage. It doesn't depend on the timeline or chronology of his life and everything he has done up to that moment. What it depends on is the man saying, I get it. Uh Aha, now I know. I know who God is, Yahweh. This man comes to faith. And that faith depends solely on the person and the presence of God himself, salvation. And I believe that Jethro came to salvation, got saved at the Mount of God on that day. Well, verse 13, we come to the second part of this chapter, what I'm calling adjudication, adjudication. And verse 13 begins, it came about the next day, day two, that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known, note this again, the statutes of God and his laws, the commandments, Torah. That's my job, Moses says. Moses' father-in-law, verse 17, said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. (laughs) No, he's not saying the law is not good. He's not saying... Offering judgment and wisdom to the people is not good. But he goes on and says, verse 18, you will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me, he says, verse 19, I will give you counsel and God be with you. And I I love Jethro's humble nod to the authority of God. Jethro's humble nod. Peace and trust. Listen, the, the ideas of man, what Jethro is springing on Moses here and what he's gonna suggest to him, this has also been talked about a lot. The ideas of, of man are not automatically unspiritual. Just because someone who's a non-believer, I'm using right now one of the commentaries I'm checking out, I'm finding fascinating. I've mentioned before, is by Nahum Sarna. He does not believe in Jesus. It's a Jewish commentary on the Jewish book of Exodus. And I'm reading it to get the perspective from, from a Jewish perspective and from Jewish scholars. And it's it's fascinating. He misses Jesus all through this. It's okay, I see him. <laughs> But just because someone doesn't believe in Jesus doesn't mean that the idea is an unspiritual or an ungodly idea. There are great ideas out there, you know that. In business and life and family, you can glean all kinds of things, all kinds of wisdom that might not even be written in Scripture, but it's still good stuff. In this case, Dwight L. Moody says it's better to set a hundred men to work than to do the work of a hundred men. And I agree with that. And Jethro's looking at Moses and he said, he's saying, son, you're, you're sitting here from morning to night making judgments for the people. You know what that means? That means at night he has to go pray about it. Moses is weary. Moses is getting worked to the bone. He's wiped out. The idea of Jethro, people have said, well, he was a non-believer, therefore it's a bad idea. No, it's not. It's an excellent idea what he's about to present to Moses here. But notice again what he says in verse 19. Listen to me, I will give you counsel and God be with you. And I love that because the ideas of man, if they're considered in light of the spirit of God, we discover the true wisdom in them. God can give a great idea to a pagan. All kinds of inventions that make life easier and some that don't We have have come from People that didn't believe in God. God can bless people with innovation and understanding and ideas and even wisdom. But when you get it, what do you do with it? You take it to God. What do you think, Lord? Is this a good idea? Do you think we should implement this? And watch this. Jethro goes on and says, you be the people's representative before God. And you bring the disputes to God and then teach them the statutes and laws, that is Torah, make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work that they are to do chethro says here's the deal you take the stuff to god and then you teach them the truth of the law but note this the word teach love this zahar in hebrew is literally shine you shine on them the truth you shed light on what's right and true from the law that God has given, from the truth of his word. You shed the light on it. Note this, Moses is, in his teaching, Moses is not the innovator. He's the illuminator. Two very different things. Moses doesn't have to generate wisdom. It's here. So all he has to do is shine the light on it. Turn the light on, Moses. Show him what the law, what the truth of God says. Shine the light on what the Lord has already given in Torah. In other words, Moses, do exactly what Peter says in Acts chapter six, verse four. Would say 1,500 years later, what's that? We must be about, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Look, Moses, do that. You need to do that. You're the guide to do that. You are right to do that. Don't innovate, you don't have to come up with anything. Just illuminate what God has given in his word and watch this verse 21. Furthermore, you shall select out of the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you if you do this thing, and God so commands you, underline that, note that, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place In peace, no more Disneyland lines waiting for you to make judgment. No more people milling about all day, waiting their turn. No, because they'll have their judges over tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands set up the judges. And then you teach the judges and you bring the word to them. And every major thing they'll come to you about. And trust me, with two and a half to three million people, there are plenty of things to dispute about. Plenty of grumblings, plenty of problems. Jethro's word is great, and especially because he couches it twice in saying, God be with you, in saying, verse 23, do this thing, and God commands you. So check it with him. Jethro wisely says, don't just take my word for it. You ask God, is this a good idea? And if God says yes, go for it, then here's a great plan, and you choose some some people to be leaders with you, to judge alongside you. This is an early list of elders, This is now giving authority to others based on the truth of the word of God. He says, able men. So you gotta find some guys who are capable and men who fear God. That is people who are spiritual. Men of truth. So they have integrity with the truth of God's word. They're willing to function by God's word. And men who hate dishonest gain, that is they can't be bought. And you set them up. What we have here is an early inventory of spiritual leadership. Ultimately, we'd see it play out in the leadership of the church, which we read about in Titus chapter one, 1 Timothy chapter three. We read about it in Ephesians chapter four, Romans chapter 12, John chapter 21, 1 Peter chapter five, elders in the church, able men who fear God, men of truth, who hate dishonest gain. That all fits into later what we'll read about looking for church leaders. That's God's design, it's not my design. It wasn't my idea. And I'm not saying anything negative about my fellow shepherds, I love these guys. But it wasn't my plan, it was God's plan. But Jethro speaks it to Moses and says, but check it with God. And that's the key to the whole organization. Jethro's plan would be bunk and worthless unless God be in it and I am apparently is in it. Verse 24, so Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel, made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens. They judged the people at all times And the difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. And then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell and he went his way into his own land. And that happens, by the way, in Numbers chapter 10. So again, the placement of this chapter is actually later on. I wanna say one last thing before we go on to chapter 19, but listen to this, it's so important. The best adjudication, if we can accept it, takes place in the household of God the best judgment should happen within the church among brothers and sisters and not outside the church 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1 Paul is writing about a problem at Corinth yet another problem at Corinth remarkable how messed up this church was how spiritually gifted <laughs> but pretty messy in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Talking about the coming kingdom. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? That's a fascinating verse. How much more matters of this life? So if you have the law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? That is, would you pull in a non-believer to make a judgment for you between believers? I say this to your shame, Paul says in verse five, because guess what? There were Christians at Corinth taking each other to court, to civil court. Paul says, it is so that there is not among you, or is it so, that this, there's one, not one among you who's wise, a wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother? And that before unbelievers? Paul's just going, I, I can't even hardly write this. Verse seven, he says, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, better to lose a lawsuit to a brother within the household of God than take it outside to pagans. Better be wrong. Better have your rights violated by a brother and forgive than go to court with pagans and heathens. He says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. And then he concludes by saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen, brothers and sisters in the church, we will be judges, rulers, and reigning with Jesus in the coming kingdom. When better to learn right than right now how to be good, righteous judges then by allowing judgment to begin in the household of God. You got a problem with a brother or sister? Let's deal with it right here. It rocks my world that we still, in 2020, in the church, rather than dealing with things together as a family, we would just pick up our Bible and go somewhere else. I don't get it. I don't understand the mentality. And I'm not talking anyone down. I'm just saying, biblically speaking, our call is to one another, to love each other, Now, and I've said this many times over the years, if God calls you to another church fellowship or or leads you somewhere else, man, go and go with blessing. Go serve where you're supposed to serve. But if you got a problem with a brother or sister in the fellowship that you're in, be it the bridge or anywhere else, deal with it together as family. Because that's what we are. And we're here not just to be comfortable with our church setting. We're here to learn how to rightly judge in spirit and in truth before the Lord. So adjudication, let it take place in the household of God. That's the best place for it to happen. Chapter 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they had come out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and they camped in the wilderness and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God. And Yahweh called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Remember, right here at Mount Sinai in Midian, Yahweh first appeared to Moses three years ago, roughly three years earlier. Appeared to him in the bush that burned but was not consumed, Exodus chapter three. Remember what he said to Moses at that time? Let me remind you. Exodus three, verse 12, God said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. He did it. He said it, he did it. And now he's reminding Moses that he said it and he did it. You're here at the mountain. And you know what's amazing to me? As they arrive here at Mount Sinai pre-law, God delivered them from Egypt and did all of this for them without asking anything of them but faith. Just trust me and I will get you there. Follow me, I'll lead you through. Go into the sea, I'll part it for you. Stand up on the hill and, and be the Lord, my banner, a picture of the Lord, my banner, they're on the hill, Moses, and I'll take out the Amalekites. I got you. I'll bring water from the rock. I'll bring bread from heaven. I'll bring quail when you want a little meat for your burgers. I got you covered. And I'm gonna bring you from there to here and the whole thing he does. And Israel has done nothing to deserve it. They haven't earned it. They haven't kept law. They haven't shown themselves righteous. In fact, far from it, they've been a grumbling bunch of whiny babies. And God brought them through got them all to Sinai. How? Born on eagle's wings. What a picture. That will be a recurring theme, by the way, for Israel. Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse nine, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him like an eagle. He cared for him, guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. I brought you to Sinai. I bore you on eagles' wings. Again, a recurring theme of eagles' wings for Israel. Isaiah chapter 63, verse nine says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, which is a stunning thought. As Israel was afflicted, so was God. In a parallel way, we say when one suffers, all suffer. Right? You know what? When Israel suffers, God suffers. When you suffer, he does too. He feels your afflictions. Isaiah 63, verse nine, and it goes on and says, and the messenger of his presence saved them. Who's the malach of his presence? Jesus Christ. Save them. Isaiah 63, verse nine, continuing, in his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them, listen, he lifted and carried them all the days of old. Lifted and carried, how? On eagle's wings, as though flying in this rescue analogy of the eagle, it's gonna come into play again. You prophecy students, halfway through the coming tribulation, you know, Revelation 12:14 says, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, that is Israel, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And here we are early on. I lifted you up. I bore you on eagle's wings. Keep that in mind. Look at verse five. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And it's a beautiful phrase. My own possession is li sagula, the word sagula. Li, my own. Sugula, special treasure or, or peculiar treasure, my own unique treasure. We read before that the Lord called them his inheritance. This is my treasure, my peculiar, my special treasure, Israel. I need to ask you right now, do you feel treasured tonight? Some don't. We can forget when the world gets tough. We don't feel treasured or treasurable You ever see a wet, matted, blind, screeching, worm-eating baby eaglet? There's not a whole lot special. They're gross, and they screech. And again, they eat worms. Ever have a day like that where you think, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I think I'll eat some worms? And here's this little baby eagle and the picture of being born on eagle's wings, think about that baby eaglet flipping and flailing and falling out of the nest and mama bird swoops down and carries little Eddie eaglet (laughs) right back up to safety on her massive pinions. Listen, you might ask the question sometimes, why would God carry me? Oh, I understand why he might carry less or John or Josiah. I understand why he might carry one of you, but me, why would God carry me? Hey, why did God carry Israel? What is it about them? How do they get to be his special treasure? What do they do? Jesus, in his parables of the kingdom, Matthew 13, verse 44 said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Do you know what that parable is? That's Israel. That's about, Israel's the treasure. There are all kinds of interpretations, but listen how this plays out. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, Israel, hidden in the field. The field is the world. And this man comes, Jesus, finds the treasure from joy over it, goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. Jesus is the one who buys the field. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse nine, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He gave it all. He paid the price of his own blood to buy the entire field. Why? Because of the treasure that's in the field. But he bought the whole field. And the field is the entire world. He himself, 1 John 2, 2, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Rather than just saving Israel, the hidden treasure in the field, he says, I'm gonna save the whole field. I'll buy the whole field. I'll give everything for the field in which is right now, in this age, hidden the treasure of Israel. God's people before, but what about now? Now, ask a Jew, they'll say we're still God's people. Although some Jews would say, I'm not even sure if God's still around. But we were his people at one time. It's not that God's hidden, it's that the Jewish people are hidden as a treasure to be revealed in the coming kingdom. And so Jesus comes, pays it all, buys the field of the world for that peculiar treasure. Israel, that's what I call covering your bases. (laughs) You wanna make sure you get the treasure? by the field. And so Jesus did that. And the buried treasure again is Israel. Now, the very next parable of the kingdom is interesting because it's all about a pearl of inestimable an value. And that pearl is not Israel, that pearl is the church. See, the pearl comes from a clam which, or an oyster, which is an unclean animal, like a Gentile. And yet the pearl represents the church, and that's Matthew 13, 45 and 46, but Matthew 13, 44, man, that is Israel hidden in the field, the treasure, Israel remains. To this day, though hidden from understanding, though hidden from the eyes of the world in comprehending this, Israel remains God's precious treasure in the larger field of the world. You're my peculiar treasure, God says. That's why he carried them on, Eagle's wings. Now, you might say, wait, okay, that still doesn't explain why he chose them. I get that he carried them on eagle's wings. He chose them to be his treasure, but, but why? Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six, I'll let God tell you. It says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, his own segula, his own treasure out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But, because listen, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God did not choose Israel based on a linear keeping of righteousness. He chose Israel by non-linear grace. Why did God choose Israel? Because he loved them. Why would God choose me? Because he loves you. Why would he lift me up on eagle's wings? Because he loves you. Because you are a treasure to him. And again, the eagle will bear up Israel. In coming days, the two wings of the eagle to, to be protected in that time of tribulation, he's gonna get them through. As for you, as for me, if we ever question our worth, you know what we have to do? Just wait for the Lord. Because Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. You feeling weak today? Feeling worthless today? Feeling less than treasurable today? Wait. You will gain new strength. You will mount up with wings like eagles. You'll run, not get tired. You'll walk and not become weary. Exodus 19, verse six, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And note this, that was God's original offer. To the people of Israel to be an entire kingdom of priests, not a priestly tribe as of Levi, which will happen now in the coming days here at Mount Horeb. It's gonna be given over to Levi. But originally, God said, I want you all to be my priestly nation. Isaiah 49, verse 6 says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I'll also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the entire end of the world or end of the earth. Remember the the field? I'm gonna buy the whole field with the treasure in it. You're gonna be a light to the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles of the world. And Israel was truly called to be a light to the nations. But you know the story. As a nation, they were blinded to the light when he came. And yet, even in that linear failure, God didn't miscalculate. He was preparing nonlinear grace. In fact, Isaiah 49 that I just read to you is a servant song that doesn't speak of Israel collectively. It speaks of one perfect Jew, specifically Jesus Christ, Yeshua, through whom this light of salvation was gonna come to the Gentiles anyway because God knew the peculiar treasure, his special people, they weren't gonna do it. But rather than trust in their linear keeping of the law by nonlinear grace, he sent Jesus as a Jew, the perfect Jew to be the light of the world, the light of salvation to the Gentiles. And by the way, he's gonna be the light who shines again on the people of Israel. That's the beauty of the plan. I don't have time to get into it tonight, but Romans 9, 10, and 11. You wanna know God's plan in the New Testament for his precious, treasured people, Israel? Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul lays the whole thing out. He is gonna come right back around and save Israel. And so all Israel will be saved. And it's a marvelous truth. You need to read through that and consider it. But until the role of light bearers has been given over, the responsibility was handed to a a, a people of of faith. That sounds a little confusing, let me restate that. The role of light bearer has been handed now to those who simply believe in God. And we would say the church, followers of Jesus Christ now have the new role of light bearer. Don't think that we're great at it, we're not a whole lot better than Israel was but we have a call we have a role and it is not i repeat not to replace israel it's a role to pick up the gospel and run with it and to shine that light the light of truth to reflect the light first peter 2 verse 9 peter says now you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for god's own possession that is treasure you're his treasure not replacing the original treasure of israel there's still the treasure hidden in the field But he says, now you are God's position as well so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, verse seven, quickly, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Have you ever said that? Yeah, how's that working out for you? I'll do everything you ask me to do, Lord. We think in our linear legalistic timeline thinking until, whoop, <laughs> failure. We're gonna do everything you say, Lord. Yeah, okay. The law was added so sin would increase, Right? And so they said, We'll do it. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Continuing verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Yeah, they said, All that you have spoken, we will do. Verse 10 The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. "'Let them be ready for the third day. "'For on the third day, the Lord will come down "'on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. "'And you shall set bounds for the people all around, "'saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain "'or touch the border of it. "'Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. "'No hand shall touch him, "'but he shall surely be stoned or shot through.'" <laughs> Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. When is this gonna happen? On the third day. Tell the people to be ready. It's all coming down on the third day. Man, there are so many great third day implications here. The most obvious one being that of Jesus' resurrection from the dead on the third day. And watch it as we go through the Hebrew scriptures. Every mention of something happening on the third day points to the resurrection of Jesus. Over and over, God specifies the third day for a specific reason. And we know on the third day, he rose from the dead. However, While we can say, ooh, third day, third day, Jesus rose from the dead, the only problem is it's not an exact implication here because when Jesus rose from the dead, no trumpet sounded to announce it. With the exception of a few startled women, some light-footed disciples, and a bunch of passed out soldiers, (laughs) there was no fanfare at all on that resurrection Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead. A mighty conquering happened, and yet the world didn't even know. As he exited the tomb, as he began to meet with people, Mary and, and Peter, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Ultimately, that evening, eleven of the well, ten of the eleven disciples. Thomas wasn't there till a week later. He starts meeting with people. Man, God is so cool. Jesus' style is so amazing. It's just one person to one person, couple people here, a few more there. Ultimately, five hundred people at one time but no fanfare, no trumpet sound. And yet that quiet third day morning changed everything. More on that this Sunday, but continue on, verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Let's we're gonna be clean here. Verse 16, so it came about on the third day. When it was morning, there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Trumpet sound, note this, it's the word shofar. You know shofar, the word for trumpet, the ram's horn. Trumpet sound, the word sound is coal. I've told you what that word means before, thunder. The ram's horn, thunder. The word thunder, we see in verse 16, where it says there was thunder and lightning flashes and then a very loud trumpet sound. You might as well say there was thunder and a loud trumpet thunder, because it's the same word, kol and kolot. That trumpet sound, that booming explosive sound, it also translates a loud voice. Trumpet sound, trumpet blast. This was like a blast of a thundering ram's horn. I want you to get the picture. Try to imagine being there as you begin on the third day to approach the mountain. And if you've ever heard a shofar especially played well, not like the little spitty sound we always make as travelers to Israel, but but someone who actually can play a shofar and that doo 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 and just explosive sound, the the mountain's rumbling, the lightning's flashing, the thunder, the smoke. Oh, it, it goes on in this description. Note this, Moses brought the people, verse 17, out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the mountain grew louder and louder, Moses spoke with God, and God answered him with thunder. I mean, boom, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called called Moses up to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and it is thundering and rocking and rolling. It's amazing trumpet sounds. (laughs) And the Lord comes down and Moses goes up. You get it? Trumpet sounds. The Lord comes down and Moses goes up to meet him. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, most of you, I hope you are, we'll talk about that on Sunday. I really wanna talk about it right now, but it's gonna to have to wait. The Lord comes down at the trumpet sound. Moses goes up, verse 21. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Wait a minute, <laughs> are some rioting Israelites really wanting to break through and see God? Apparently, there were some among Israel who thought, I see these boundaries Moses set up, but I'm gonna, we're gonna go see this. We're gonna get closer. God says, don't let it happen. Verse 22, and also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. And some might say, well, wait a minute, that's out of order. What do you mean the priests? I don't, they're not made priests until Leviticus. This is now back at the beginning Before the law is given and there are priests, the word is kohanim. So how does that work? Kohanim can also mean chief or leader. And the old rabbis teach that this was the firstborn males in the tribes, leaders of families, and that they were called kohanim or priests. Even prior to the Aaronic priesthood, that's the priesthood of Aaron, was put into play as a royal priesthood in the offering of sacrifices and the giving of the law. Verse 23, Then Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up again you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, God is concerned here because he knows something Moses doesn't know. He's reading hearts of the people and he knows that there are some just foolish enough to try and skip over the boundaries Moses set. And if they do, they will die. Listen, (laughs) if you read chapter 19 quickly as we just did, we're gonna come back and we're gonna really sink into it on Sunday. But if you read it through quickly, what you see is this up, down, up, down, up. It's like Winnie the Pooh doing exercises. You know, when I up, down, touch the ground, it puts me in the mood for food. I watched it too many times in my life. But the up and down and up, and down. Moses goes up the mountain, then he has to come down the mountain and tell the people. he goes up the mountain to talk to God, he has to come back down the mountain and tell the people, then he goes up to the mountain to talk to God, comes back down the mountain. Do you realize there are seven ascents Between here and chapter 34, Moses goes up the mountain and then he has to come back down. Then he goes up the mountain again, then he has to come back down seven times, which is, of course, the number of completion in the Bible. But listen, get this, just two last thoughts and we're gonna be done tonight. Number one, there is a right way to approach a holy God. You don't just go flying up there however you want. This is not a linear when, a right time to approach God. There is not a, 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 right, not a linear when, right place, right time, but a humble how. It's not when do I approach God, when do I, it's how do I approach God? And you approach him on his terms, not yours, not mine. God reveals himself to Israel as I am and where God is Man, holiness is profound. Think about the picture of the rumbling mountain. This is impressive. Earthquaking, mountain-baking, thunder-shaking appearance of God. And, and, And I believe it's to drive this point home to the people. Listen, you've got to understand who you're dealing with here. I'm not like the gods of Egypt, who could be walked all over as you saw in the plagues. I am one true God. I am the holy Yahweh. I am. And so he appears with this thunderous furnace of smoke and fire and shaking and and the noise of the blast of the trumpet. It's enough to make anybody tremble in their boots. And he does it to say, look, I am holy. You don't just come wandering up to see me. There is a right way to approach God. This is gonna work. In fact, after he gives the Ten Commandments that the people hear him speaking out, these commandments, they hear the boom, the thunderous sounds coming from the top of the mountain. You know what the people do? Over in chapter 20, verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes from the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. They got it. They got it. God is awesome. We have lost sight of that in this culture. We do not comprehend the awesome nature and power of I am. We come to him however we want rather than the way he's called us. How do you approach God? How do you come to him? Have you forgotten who we're dealing with? Man, I am so thankful he became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. I'm so thankful, Hebrews 1, 2, that in these last days he has spoken to us in his son Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. I'm so thankful that we can come to God through Jesus. We can draw near because of Jesus, but please never forget he is still God, and we will tremble before him when we see him. Now, the reason this all started, understand this, with the up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, Moses goes up the mountain, comes down, goes up the mountain, comes down. Second thing to know, that this holy, awesome God is protecting his most treasured people Why does he send Moses back down? Even though Moses says, we set up boundaries, go back down and tell them anyway. Why? He's protecting Israel from themselves, (laughs) from their own foolishness. The God in his holiness and righteousness and dangerous moral perfection is protecting his people. Please listen. This is what he does with those whom he treasures. He protects us. He cares for us. It is why Jesus came, that we might draw near by nonlinear grace. We don't come all dressed with our good works because they're filthy rags. We don't come wearing and bearing the law because to us it just makes sin increase. We come by nonlinear grace, which Jesus gives by faith, and we draw near nothing earned. Nothing worked for over time, just a people who trust in and are treasured by the Lord God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, not fear on the boundaries of Mount Sinai, but confidence to come right into the holy of holies by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Draw near. Not your way, not my way, but his way. And how is that? By grace. By grace you are saved, and that not of yourselves. Through faith. It's a gift of God, so that no man will boast. Father, we draw near to you through Jesus Christ. Our boldness, our confidence is not our linear works. It is your grace. And it is in speaking the name of Jesus. And it is in being known by Jesus who, who goes before us, who intercedes for us. Lord Jesus, it is because of you that we pray. It is because of you that we have fellowship. It's because of you that we're no longer Slaves, but children. It's because of you that we can enter in. And so we do tonight. And I pray, Father, that as we come to you, there would be just enough trembling in our spirits and in our hearts to recognize you are an absolutely holy God. But I thank you for the confidence you have given us through Jesus Christ to actually believe we are indeed a treasured people. We are beloved. We are children of God. And Lord, as someone who just happened to be in the field when you bought the whole thing, I thank you with all that I am for calling me your child. Thank you for your grace, Father, in Jesus' name.